morning, church. Today we continue on in the last chapter of James, chapter 5. In the beginning of chapter 5, we dive into James's strongest exhortation to the church. This morning's passage isn't necessarily the feel-good passage you were looking for, all right? But there's something here that the Lord is giving to us here. Now, James has been leading up to this, by the way, in both chapter 4 and in chapter 2, But James saves his harshest, most pointed language for the church in our text here. And the goal of this is is not to just fill you with guilt and shame and regret. It's, It's to see something wonderful about Jesus. And it's only, by the way, when we hear hard things that we are able to have our hearts softened. to to see the tenderness of our Father. And it's only when we see Christ's heart for the people He died for that we will be able to have this effect of the Word softening our hearts. So before we begin, um, can we pray uh, for the Word of God as we we pray together? Let's pray. Father, uh, You being the generous God, the giver of all good things, lead us to understanding Your heart through this text today that you are a God who wants us to long to see the end of the race rather than to see what is right in front of us. May your spirit guide us in this text and guide the preaching of your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So uh, let's start with a basic question that maybe will capture the spirit of this section. Um, What do you get mad about? I'm not talking about being like annoyed at something, like your husband left the cabinet stored wide open again and you had to close it, or you know, just, just something bothered you, like there's, there's some word or phrase that just gets on your nerves. I, I'm, I'm talking about the things that when they happen, drive you straight to anger. Now, now what, what is that thing? Um, now I'm going to make the argument that whatever this thing is that you get mad about says a lot about the person that you are. Uh, it reveals what you believe about morality, good ethics. It reveals how proper living is defined in your mind. It reveals your unfiltered self when you stop trying to be polite about everything and start fighting for what you believe in. And not all anger, by the way, is necessarily bad anger. Our earlier studies in the book of James talked about the idea that Christians are to be slow to anger. So, It implies that there are moments and places and times for righteous anger in the Christian life. Kids, there are times where your parents are righteously angry because you did something, right? And that is anger is okay. You can't play the, Jesus showed love all the time, mom and dad, right? You must always love everything I do. No, no, no. no, There is time and a place for righteous anger. So parents, rejoice. (laughs) Equip yourself with that. Properly understood. James, in these five, uh, six verses, chapter five, he is righteously angry. And he's trying to help the church see God's character, God's ethics, God's unfiltered self in these verses that will help those in the church whom he is addressing to repent for what they have done. Sometimes God, by the way, calls us his church to repentance in in a tender, winsome, gracious way. Uh, Sometimes God gives us the desires of our hearts and makes us to see, by the way, the sinfulness of those desires, right? This is like Romans 1. But but where God gets angry, as we'll see here, is is when there are those in the life of the church that are trying to harm his sheep. 
And it's in this anger that we actually see the deep love, grace, and compassion that God has for his church. So look again at verse 1 at this text. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So let's start first here by addressing the, the you rich. Who are the you rich that James is talking to? Um, a lot of commentators disagree, but the general consensus is that these are not non-Christians that are the rich. This isn't what's, again, happening outside the church. These are Christians who are living within the community that are wealthy. Now, it's not their wealth that's the problem. It's hiding behind their wealth to try and demonstrate their devotion to God when in reality they do not trust Jesus at all. And so James is writing to these 12 tribes scattered across the region. Uh, James is stating a universal truth that every generation of the church and humanity has had to deal with. There are those who will try and use money, wealth, uh, status, prestige to hide deep down that they are not true followers of God, that they don't trust Him with their lives. They trust in their wealth. And these are where James, James is echoing the exhortations of his brother, Jesus Christ, in reminding the churches of the corruption of riches and the judgment that will await those who place their hope in such things. Look at verses 2 and 3. Uh, your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. These verses tell us that these individuals placed their trust in the items they have bought and the possessions that they own would carry them throughout their life. But James reminds them, no matter how much they've accrued, no matter how much money we've made, they will one day be worthless and insignificant. Now, I don't really have to convince you of this reality, do I? This is the reality of just simple economics. Uh, let me give you a historical example. Um, let's play a little game here. Let's see if you can identify what this is. In the 19th century, there was a precious metal that was worth more than gold, silver, and diamonds. It was so sought after that the French government once kept this metal in bars right next to the crown jewels, and favored guests of the minor emperor Napoleon III would actually receive a prized set of utensils made out of this metal for VIPs only, while the rest of his guests would only eat out of, you know, gold knives and forks like peasants, right? A pound of this stuff, this metal, would cost $550, just one pound of this metal. So to have this metal was to be a part of the elite class. This metal was the absolute sign that you had power, you had made it, you are worthy. Today, we don't think of aluminum as having this kind of value in our lives because we have the production value of the efficient, uh, the efficient ways to strip aluminum and produce tons of good today based upon it. Uh, just 50 years after the first production plant began to uh, mine aluminum and sell it to the masses, a pound of the same aluminum that was worth $550 became 25 cents. Now, what once is in the king's court as its most prized possession now covers our enchiladas while we bake them in the oven, right? So churches, right? What, what, what are we placing our value in, our treasure and our hope in? Because it's more than just the physical reality of micro and macroeconomics. Here's the danger why this matters for us as we walk in wisdom together. There's something deeply spiritual that happens when we start placing trust in our possessions to do something that only the gospel can. Um, one, 
What you own will begin to control you. James put it bluntly in verse 3, it will eat your flesh like fire. It will consume your body, mind, and soul, and it will eradicate everything else. You can't stop thinking about it. Your emotions are tied to it. You can't think about a life separated from it. You start making goals and dreams, targeting stuff, and you're even willing to sacrifice your family, your friends, your community, your, your budget, most of all, your relationship with God because of it. The words of the Hebrew biblical commentator by the name of uh, Sturgeon, uh, not Charles Spurgeon, Sturgeon, says prof- this profoundly about the greedy. This is, this is a great quote. He writes this, it is not possible to satisfy the greedy. If God gave them one whole world to themselves, they would cry for another. If it were possible for them to possess heaven as they are now, they would feel themselves in hell because others were in heaven too. For their greed is such that they must have everything or else they have nothing. And so what this means is this. Um, and we have to ask ourselves this question. Do we believe that salvation is tied up to what we've accrued, to what we own? Now, none of us uh, being raised functionally in the faith, maybe you've grown up in church, uh, you might not ever admit this reality with your mouth, but it's not hard to take a peek into our lives and see how our hopes are tied to the things that we own that will bring us hope. Money can never be the savior that we think or hope it will be. Uh, there's a man by the name of uh, John D. Rockefeller. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, if you've ever been to New York City, there's Rockefeller Square, right? Um, who, he, at this time when he died in 1937, uh, he was considered to be the richest person to have ever existed. Uh, estimations about his wealth in today's dollars to put him at about $423 billion with a lifetime of earnings that stood at $1.5 trillion. And so famously, after he passed away in 1937, someone went to Rockefeller's personal accountant to ask him a question, and that question was this. Uh, how much money did John leave when he passed away? His accountant just said, John left all of it. <laughs> He couldn't take any of it with him. Now, as a devout Christian, John Rockefeller knew this. He became known for his outrageous generosity and philanthropy for the world in every significant field of study, including the church. Uh, So perhaps the question that we need to ask ourselves is, do we understand that we can't take it with us? Because if we don't, James has some stern words that we need to consider. You see, the churches that James was writing to were sadly no different than the rest of the world when it came to how business was done. Look at what the rich in the church are doing in verse 4 of our passage today. There are those that withheld wages from their laborers. The harvesters' cries were so loud and the injustice so great that the cries of these individuals could not be ignored by God himself. Now, before I get up, move on again, again, we must remind ourselves here that wealth in and of itself is not inherently sinful. Uh, Wealth is a great tool of life, but it is a terrible rule of life. And when the pursuit of wealth becomes all that consumes us, we start heading down the exact same pathway that the father of lies believed when he thought he could exalt his own throw about the stars over God himself in Isaiah 14. This will inevitably lead to what Satan tries to do to every single one of us in John chapter 10, that we will steal, kill, and destroy. Just like verse 4 verse four says in our passage here today. 
The blood they spilled cries on the ground echoes the same cries of Abel when Cain, uh, jealousy took his brother's life. And look at the end of verse 4. The name that James uses for God, the Lord of hosts. Now, this name would have been a frightening reality to the hearts and minds of the reader. The cries on the ground have, have gone to the Lord of hosts. Now, when we talk about the Lord of hosts, that isn't the name of God that comes first to mind for us. Maybe we don't understand what that's all about, which is, which is sad because it's a name that is stated over and over and over again in the Old Testament literature. In fact, it's used over 200 times to destroy, to, to, not destroy, to describe the Lord in a very specific way. The Lord of hosts is describing the Lord as a conqueror. The Lord of hosts means the Lord of the armies of heaven. This is the Lord of hosts in the Old Testament that struck down Goliath, that made the walls in Jericho fall down, destroyed the false prophets in Elijah and Elijah's day, the one whom Israel proclaimed as their fortress, whose power makes the heavens tremble and the earth shaken out of its place in the book of Isaiah, who decrees disaster to the idolater of Baal and Jeremiah, who burns the chariots of smoke in Nahum, who swears vengeance on Moab and Ammon and Zephaniah, the conquering, victorious captain of the greatest military force ever to exist in the history of existence, this is the Lord of hosts. And who does this Lord of hosts defend? Who does this Lord of hosts act on behalf of? It's not the powerful. It's not the wealthy. It's not the elite. It's not the ones who neglect justice and mercy. No, the Lord of hosts is sent from God's repeated and special care for the marginalized, for those who can't defend themselves, the poor and the powerless, the shed blood of the innocent, the orphan and the widow, the oppressed whose cries have been neglected by the oppressors, the voice of the voiceless will come and make an account for those who cannot speak for themselves. That is when the Lord of hosts is activated. So do you see what James is depicting here? He's saying to those within the walls of the church, hiding behind their status, their position, their wealth, pretending to honor God, your day is coming when you can no longer hide behind what other people are buying into. The Lord of hosts is here. There will be a reckoning. Now, what is James trying to change in the heart of his people? No amount of power or wealth can justify sin. No amount of power and wealth can buy forgiveness. No amount of money you put in the offering plate will absolve your sins. Your offerings don't dictate the will of God. Your wealth is not a place for you to to gain prominence in the community of Christ. The things that money can't buy aren't the capital. I'm sorry, the things that money can't buy are the capital that matter the most in the kingdom of God. The fruits of our labor have nothing over the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And when we invest in those fruits, we will find that it fundamentally changes the way that we treat others around us in need. But what happens if we continue on the course of the fruit of the world? Well, we result in the same way of the fruit of the world. Verse 6 talks about the end result of following the world's discipleship on wealth. 
In a world where the Roman Empire, where basically laborers and harvesters were considered to be property of the wealthy, you see, there was no obligation for wealthy landowners in the Roman Empire to treat their workers with any kind of dignity or respect as human beings. Uh, they were cattle, disposable resources to be used up and discarded, murdered and condemned, used up and unable to resist the unrighteous. Going up in the fruit of the world leads them to believe that they could play the role of God, determining who is valuable while at the same time padding their own coffers. So what does James want us to understand here at the end of verse 6? Why is this verse even here in Scripture? What does this have to do with the wisdom of faith that is lived out in the church community? You see, James saves his harshest, most angriest words here to protect and warn the church that Christ's love and to remind the church about what Christ himself wished for his people to know about wealth and how to use it. James spends a great deal of his preaching ministry talking about the topic of, I'm sorry, Jesus spends a great deal of his preaching ministry talking about the topic of money and possessions. Jesus talks about wealth more than he does than heaven and hell combined. Why? Because Jesus knows his audience and the things that are competing for the hope of salvation amongst his hearers. What does Jesus say in Matthew? That where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And nothing but searching for the treasure of Christ, nothing but the eternal home of God's kingdom, nothing but the true fellowship of being united to God and his people can do to fill the greatest need of our hearts. So why are these exhortations so harsh in verse 6? Because Jesus doesn't want us to believe the lie that has consumed so many. The perfect life isn't the building up of wealth that proclaims the greatness of our great names or even the greatness of City of Hope. The truly perfect life the truly perfect life that was lived was lived by a homeless wanderer who lived his entire life with no place to lay his head. Jesus died without any possession to claim of his own. He died without a spouse, without children. He died with no social standing, relational capital, a 401k, even livestock or land. He died an unjust death from the kind of people he spent a lifetime warning his disciples about, those in the highest positions of wealth and power who used it to lord it over others in unrighteousness. Jesus lived the most perfect life that has ever lived, and it was a life not filled with wondering how much he had, but healing the sick, raising the dead to life, breaking bread with those whom society gave up on, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. Jesus gave up himself so that you and I might see where our true treasure lies, so that we would follow Christ and give up our lives in the exact same way. And in the greatest, most profound act of all, Jesus was condemned and killed. And like verse 6 is talking about, he did not resist this death because it was only in this that the people that Jesus loved, the joy that was set before him, Jesus could lay claim to the greatest treasure of all, the new heavens and the new earth, the great kingdom of God that is given freely to all who would trust and believe in it in faith. No amount of earthly possession could earn it, but only in the generosity of our great giver of life in Christ himself could earn it for us. So you now emphasize here with why our text is filled with angry and righteous judgment. 
Because how could anyone, any church, anyone experiencing and knowing what the riches of Christ could be ever buy into this narrative that worldly treasures are the key to happiness? How could anyone continue to say that the ends justify the means? That we can treat our church members poorly? That we can treat our volunteers with harshness? That we can demand more than what our church members can give? How could anyone say that and be a person of God. It should lead us as a church to see that God's anger is not only towards the unrighteous, but even with those in the church, and, and to see God's character and heart to protect his sheep, to protect his people for those who he loved. It should lead us as a church to repentance, not finding our worth in all the metrics of what it means to be a successful church, but finding our worth in loving and serving and caring for one another as Christ gave up his life for us. So church, my encouragement to all of us here this morning is to consider where are you laying up the treasures of your heart? Consider this. Christ died for us because we were, not because we were worthy in his sight, but because he loved us so much that he gave us his worthiness. And he didn't stop there, did he? He gave us the Spirit of God and told us that He was going to use us to build His kingdom. He told us that He would do it through His beautiful bride, this church, that this, this bride would do greater works than He did in building His kingdom. And this kingdom is built on a different economy, a kingdom that is built on centering Christ as Lord of all, building our families, building our community, our world in a place that seeks first the kingdom of God and His righteousness as the most treasured thing that we could ever imagine. So these six verses are here to remind us not just simply what God gets mad about, but it reminds us of what He loves and, what he, and who He loves. He loves you. He loves His people. He would send the Lord of hosts to protect you and care for you. And He wants you to see today the worthiness of His Son. So let's pray together. Father, would we be the kind of people that love you more than we love things. Lord, our hearts are so inclined to want to find a joy elsewhere. May you redirect our hearts to the only one who is worthy, 